So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. What are we drinking today? We got Elysian's Contact Haze. Nice little 6% easy uh, sunny beer on a sunny day. A little bit of wind blowing outside. We can see the pollen swirl in the air. It's a nice day. Very tasty stuff. Today we're talking about John Houston. We have three films from Houston. We have The African Queen, Key Largo, and The Asphalt Jungle. We do. Do you have any early feelings about Houston compared to other filmmakers before we get into first impressions? Um, not right off the bat. I think I'll wait till we dive in. What about you? <clears throat> I'm I'm puzzled by his place in genre. I think he's one of those P.T. Anderson types where I just don't know that I'd say he's a genre filmmaker the way that I would with a lot of other directors, you know, Nolan or Villeneuve, I would say they're, they're a little bit eclectic in their fans of what they're making. Whereas I think Houston's just trying to make the best piece of literature for screen at some level. Mm. And he, he straddles all sorts of lines genre wise. I find him very interesting. We'll dig in. Yeah, let's get on to first impressions of Damien Chazelle's The Eddie. Farid's involved in something, and I'm worried that they might try and do something. Can't tell the police. I can't tell the police if they'll shut us down. You get inside now. On ne peut pas se permettre d'être mauvais. On ne peut pas se permettre d'être vite. There are people who are depending on that club. This is all I got. You understand? This is it. Wish you sounded like that last night. Fuck you. All right, we just watched the trailer for Damien Chazelle's The Eddie. Thoughts? Very pleased, very excited by this one. It looks like the musicality and punch that we saw in Whiplash and First Man is back. And I mean, it's essentially just a wonderful trailer, I would say. The way that it's cut near the end, there's so much pulse and momentum. Um, the camera's constantly swirling, moving, darting, zooming, zooming out that it definitely overwhelmed me to the point where I'm very excited for this. I don't know how it'll translate to, I believe it's eight limited series episodes. Um, but I'm very excited to see his stylings back with music, kind of a, a grungy um, American, but foreign version of Mozart in the jungle is what it reminds me of a little bit more crime, a little bit more thrill, but Mozart in the jungle was a little bit crime, a little bit thrilly. It, it showed the human side of music. And I think this will too. How about you? Yeah, definitely getting strong Whiplash vibes, but content-wise, it's kind of like it's picking up with Ryan Gosling's character from La La Land, and this is just him, you know, now trying to keep his jazz club afloat with this 
with that thriller component of Whiplash kind of mixed in there. Um, I don't know that it was quite what I thought it would be. I definitely was maybe surprised by the um, kind of momentum that it had. But uh, I think it looks cool. I agree. I'm intrigued. I agree. On to Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. If we change the way that movies are made, I think you can change the world. I want you to be the star. Really? If you want something, you have to declare it. I'll do anything. I am not just a star. I am a star maker. All right, everyone. Roll camera. Action. This studio is risking everything. We're already seeing pushback. And suddenly, everything goes dark again. All right, Michael. That was the trailer for Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. What do you think? I'm a little skeptical. Uh, the artifice is high. Um, I'm not sure that it's exactly going for authenticity in its depiction of I classic think Hollywood. When we talk about Ryan Murphy as a producer, I've never heard the word authenticity follow. N- normally, it's more about seedy, sultry, uh, visually poppy you know like kind of visual pop like something that you look at and are pleased by and no matter what's on screen yeah i don't know that i am pleased i don't know that i would describe it as seedy either seedy i think of as kind of grimy and like there's not a spot on anyone's clothes or the Hmm. production design like it feels highly highly pristine uh seedy in only a sexual way like like a seedy undercurrent to the narrative that is sexual overtly yeah um yeah, I mean it's uh it's it's a mini series and I can only say that to me it just looks like what I think of when I think of TV versus what I think of when I hear the word cinema, you know, it just kind of has that visual flatness to me that I associate with um a lot of long form uh content these days. Um you know, it's inherently kind of intriguing as a cinephile to, you know, to see a show about classic Hollywood, but um, I don't know the style is my thing. What about you? I think the style is more my thing. It's something that I'm not over the moon about, but Jim Parsons doing fun character acting work is something I'm very intrigued by. Um, Samara Weaving, I'm always going to show up for her performances. She hasn't disappointed me in about four years and, she was in a terrible movie called Monster Trucks, and she still gave her all in that. So that animated? Um, that was an animated, terrible CG movie. But, um, you know, she raises things that are below the bar for me. Um, she stood out in Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, and she's just kind of a star. So I'm very interested to see how she plays a supporting role in a limited series. I think this is going to be her first turn in that sense, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, I'm lukewarm on it you know i'll probably watch it and if it has enough propulsiveness i'll see it through it's limited series which i think is smart have a direct ending point for this and it lets them have some ryan murphy content which tends to be what people like you know he's a successful executive producer for a reason he creates things that people love in mass and i don't suspect this will be any different he did the Gwyneth Paltrow one, right? I got the sense that wasn't hugely successful. That felt like a rare misstep. A rare one. Um, um, I'm not familiar with what you're saying when you say Gwyneth Paltrow one. Because it wasn't very popular. It was his first Netflix one. Oh, 
boy. Yes, I loosely have an idea of what you're talking about. It was like the con... No, not the conversation. It was like the spy? Something really flat like that? The politician. There you go. The politician, the spy, yeah. Yeah, I tried the first half of an episode of that. I couldn't finish it. So, yeah. Yeah. TBD. On to the African Queen from John Huston. I'm the captain, that's who. And I ain't taking you along. You'd only be in my way. I suppose I was in your way going down the rapids. Then what you said to me back there on the river was a lie about how you never could have done it alone and how how you lost your heart and everything. You liar. I think it's fair to say the African Queen is the lightest of the three John Huston movies we're talking about today. I understand. I think it's all in who you are and where you live when you make that assessment, Michael. Because if you Mm. are the peoples whose houses were lit on fire by the German uh, military, you would not think it's so light and funny. But In that case, it is highly traumatic. That is true. (laughs) There is a high amount of innuendo in this road movie that is taking place on a boat. Uh, They go through some white rapids, and Catherine Hepburn cannot help fan herself and talk about how excited she's become. Um, Her uh, peculiar peculiar, um, facial contortions... And darting eye movements when he's drinking hard alcohol are quite illustrative of some sort of a lost um, sense of nobility that we have where where people hold themselves back from partaking. Um, we'll get to it later, but I do think that um, alcoholism is very much a prevalent recurring uh, theme for John Huston. And oh, I don't sure. know if that's necessarily post-war induced or if that's um personal life for uh, america at the time in yeah general. yeah we have yeah an alcoholic in all three of these yes. films yeah um out of five stars i'm kind of in between a three and a three and a half on this one um i enjoyed myself for the most part but found it to mostly be just uh fairly weightless but amusing escapist adventure um the adventure component being much more worthwhile than the romantic component for me um didn't respond terribly well to the the humor of it but uh enjoyed myself well enough i get the sense you're higher on it i'm much higher on it i'm 84 87 right in that four and a half range for me um I'd probably lean towards the higher side, so it'd be a high four, a low four and a half. Um, This is something that I could have seen myself just having on when I was younger. Um, One of the few classic films where I could just like have it on and enjoy particular scenes um, between these two in what is essentially just a road movie um, that takes place on a river. And the romantic component is dry-ish, but there's some... Um, I guess the word would be recursive innuendo happening just underneath the surface that I think is pretty eloquently visually cued to the viewer. Um, particularly Catherine um, getting heated at certain points when Humphrey takes off his shirt for the leeches or goes through those scenarios or um, just the the way that she interacts with him. Um, when he stands up to her, there's there's a weird sexual chemistry there that I don't think that we have anymore. 
sexual chemistry between them? Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know that I felt the sexual chemistry, but I think that they were going for a type of sexual chemistry that we no longer go for in cinema or or film, really. Um, I, I haven't seen anything quite like that in recent memory. Can you point to anything? Uh, nothing comes to mind, but that's maybe just because I didn't find it successful. Um, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of a form of opposites attract here, but there's no why. Like there's, there's really never any rationale for what is. They're both alive in Africa. Duh. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. So it's desperation. I, I don't know. I don't know that I even really buy that. Um, I think. There is something a little kind of insulting about it asking us to, to to buy the romance between them to me, but I guess it's easy enough to get past because I think the the journey itself is pretty fun and pretty eventful, and that goes a long way. Like, this is not a boring movie in the slightest. No, it's not. And just so that our, our listeners have an idea, according to IMDb, this is a love story between a gin-swilling riverboat captain and a straight-laced missionary <laughs> in which they're planning to use a boat to attack an enemy warship by building custom torpedoes. Um, just so that everybody's on the same page about what the African Queen is. <laughs> that is the story. Um, yeah, and, you know, the innuendo, it is it is a lightly amusing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I just felt there was really enough to her character to, to to get that much of a laugh out of it. It definitely feels like Hepburn isn't really in on the joke in a way. Um, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting filmmaking techniques that I saw. Um, we, we see uh, projection in the background and then the boat rocking, which is something that we clearly no is stolen from Keaton, who is the first of his kind to do these um, mechanical boat movements on a reverse projection screen. But then there, I, I believe about two thirds into the movie, we have an uh, entire close up scene where they're on the boat and they're like in an area that has foliage on, on the lot. And then behind them, you go up about two thirds and you get a projector. So they're using location stage with um, like surrounding foliage to interact with the boat while it's rocking back and forth while they're having an intense drama scene. And then in the background on the top half, we see the sky change. And that's something that I haven't seen, um, I believe, this early as far as special effects go. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think to the extent this works, and I think this overall does work for me um, in terms of it's just kind of pure uh entertainment value i think it's just because of how kind of seamlessly crafted it is you know between like some of the miniature stuff some of the stuff that you know i Mm -hmm. don't think was shot on location right quite clearly um oh you can't wait to talk about those palm trees in key largo (laughs) oh yeah no kidding uh yeah, but I, th- I think it all comes together quite believably in terms of uh, the form you believe in the motion of this thing moving forward towards the lake at the end of the mission. Yeah. Um, you know, it does have a momentum. Um, there's no doubt about that. And you absolutely believe there's those crocodiles and hippopotamus and monkeys and lions and, and gazelle, right? Yeah. 
I no, believe they're there. <laughs> when when he, Bogey's interacting <laughs> with them, making their sounds, that was one of the most absurd things in the film that, like, I don't understand acting back then. This did win the um, Oscar for Best Performance by a Dramatic Actor for Humphrey Bogart. And I just can't imagine that. Yeah, I did not care for that bit uh, of Bogart doing the hippo impression. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Yeah. the... But then he does the monkey one, too. Yeah, 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 you're right. He does, like, a bunch in a row, and I just, I didn't... Mm. Maybe that's showing the delirium of him having to be dry now without any alcohol, because she pours it all out. And I mean, that, that is, I believe, how the plot points go. That would be, like, you know, directly following that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I couldn't help but feel like a hard boiled bogey was beneath there and wouldn't, would just be desperate to shake off these gestures if he, if he could. It just doesn't really feel like the kind of material that this actor is best with. Um, it's, you know, I think the innuendo is, is a little bit better than that kind of humor. We also get a scene like the one at the beginning where his stomach is growling at the table when they're like having tea or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, it's just the kind of, it feels a little brainless in its jokes. Um, but it also doesn't really take, take itself serious enough to like be that mad about it. So you kind of go with it. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, the the flaws we're pointing out are also the, the crucial plot elements where right when the evil German sniper is about to shoot them, just as Catherine Hepburn had predicted, the sun hits his eye and he screams out, ah, and moves the sniper rifle away. <laughs> like, there's there's just a classic Hollywood comedy level to this film. Um, it, it, it's not earnest, but it's damn close. It's it's yeah. it's close enough to where I I let it get it by. Yeah, I mean, I guess I found myself thinking that if this came out today, it would be Jungle Cruise, right? Like I I think I probably give this the benefit of the doubt just because it's older. It has this kind of historic charm to it. Um it's only when you when I kind of start digging that I'm like, I don't know if this is actually a very good movie. Um but, you know, it's also hard to just kind of resist the the movement of it i guess yeah i i think that a lot of my appreciation comes from acknowledging its period and what exactly went into the filmmaking knowing it was shot on location in africa in some portions and then on the lot in england for everything else i mean that's pretty restrictive knowing the equipment restrictions at the time um i mentioned earlier before the show started there's a particular scene about six I, I guess what would be three fourths of the way into the film, if not like five eighths, if you're juggling um, fractions. But the um, the gnats show up when they try to moor onto the side of a of the river and spend the night. And the way that they use um, special effects to get those gnats is they do like an over inlay of um, like overexposed film almost that has kind mm-hmm. of the like floaties that you'd see when when you're just looking in the sun and all of a sudden something goes across your eye vision. But there's tons of those, like in a Hollis Frampton piece. And it's it's overlaid, I believe, directly between 
um, the film. So they're acting as if there's gnats in the real piece. And then they insert that and then put the overlay behind for the environment, creating what appears to be a gnat swarm while they're in motion this entire time. And I, I think that it's those key pieces of film editing and filmmaking that are really fascinating to me that paved the way for future use of technicolor of special effects of shot reverse shot projection uh overlay in the background you know it this type of stuff kind of i i believe led the way for a lot of different types of cinema yeah i uh, mostly agree i think um that yeah i mean the craft is what makes it fun um i wish it was in service of something a, a little more convincing or meaningful i mm-hmm. suppose this um, is a little bit more of a post-war uh happy-go-lucky film essentially where everything yeah. just goes right yeah i mean when you think about you know this was 50 right 1950 mm-hmm. when year did this come out yeah 1951 yeah this kind of seems like one of those kinds of films that would be maybe held up as the kind of cinema that you know, audiences, even though it was a big success at the time, I think it still seems to me like the kind of films that the studios were increasingly trying to make to hold audiences and that people ultimately, especially like the youth, kind of turned their back on as the 60s came around, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know why. That, that, that I think it's that feeling that makes me resistant to draw too much of a connection between that and like, you know, the experimental avant-garde is that it seems like the kind of thing that they actually would have been, you know, in like responding to but i think in terms of the craft there certainly could be like literal scientific kind of experiments that they ran with yeah yeah i I don't think that um the narrative of the african queen led the way of avant-garde cinema um by any means but i i do think john houston is an interesting tactician and technician behind the camera for sure and working on screenplays and location i i mean for me, none of these films that we're going to be discussing are my favorite from him. My favorite is either The Treasure of the Sierra Madre or The Maltese Falcon. But um, in all of these, he's essentially able to create a weather system outside of each one of these films. Whether it's actual weather, whether it's political climate, whether it's war climate, uh, poverty. He's able to create a, a human weather pattern that affects these people that are inside of whatever the location is uh, in the asphalt jungle it's inside of the city in key largo it's inside of the hotel here it's inside of the boat and um he uses different film techniques that i i think we see still use today and, and i i mean i know that he directly influenced orson wells in some of um his advice and in some of his filmmaking um so i just I, I really respect this film as far as a yeah. prestige picture. Yeah. I think there's in all three of these movies, particularly this one in Key Largo, there's a lot of kind of striking deep focus where, you know, he'll go in for a close up on bogey, but you're still seeing Hepburn in the background. I remember some of those shots towards the beginning when bogey's kind of walking up to Hepburn and her brother's character, or the brother, mm-hmm. the character of her brother on the porch. And there. she's playing with the th- spool of thread. Is this after he died or before? Probably a little bit of both of those scenes okay. where, you know, those those compositions are always kind of having 
a face in the foreground and the background when when you think about you know deep focus like that how do you not think about wells and citizen Kane mm-hmm. and that kind of thing um so yeah i yeah with you there um boy there's a there's a lot to this um particular comedy uh tentpole goliath i i don't know what um i guess what are your primary problems with it other than screenplay stuff is there anything filmmaking wise that kind of rubbed you the wrong way um not in terms of the craft no that's why i think i'm ultimately kind of positive on this i'm like this is something i think i would enjoy just watching on a saturday morning like you actually did today yes exactly exactly Um, i did enjoy it yeah but in terms of their you know being any real weight to the central relationship which is a lot of this movie or there being any real meaning to the mission itself um and us kind of being asked to to believe that she has um set out to either avenge her brother's death or has found this sense of patriotism i don't know that i really think there's anything to those ideas um that the, that the movie digs into meaningfully i would agree that's what that's where it gets really weak and i like i don't it's not because of Catherine, the performer. It's because of the way the film is, is seemed together, but I don't believe that she's this Christian missionary. Um, now that might be because of my exposure level to her. Like her favorite performance for me is when she's someone who's basically going mentally insane, addicted to opioids and a drunk in long day's journey into night which is one of the greatest performances i've ever seen from a female actress and i just have a hard time from the perspective we're given on her to believe that she's a missionary that's been there for 10 years um and that she wants to be there especially with the um scene that we see when he walks in to the church and she's playing the piano very clearly uncomfortable and mm-hmm. right that's another joke that happens when she undresses to go take a bath she takes off like nine garments in the scene and she's still taking garments off mm-hmm. um behind the uh the steam pipe uh as i think we get like a slow black fade and then switch to them already in the water yeah yeah um and to be fair i don't mean to try and ask something of an adventure movie that it just wasn't meant to do necessarily but like i can't help but also think about something like Indiana Jones, which also inspired <laughs> actual theme park rides, right? Yeah. Like, this was loosely the inspiration for the actual Jungle Cruise ride, but, like, Indiana Jones, like, is just infinitely more um, entertaining to me, even though this is this is plenty fun in, in its own way, and I think it's partly just creativity in a way. You know, the, the amusement here is animals, mm-hmm. it's bugs. Um, leeches we get nazis which we also get in indiana jones Mm -hmm. but there is something about kind of the modesty of its charm that i think holds it back from from greatness indiana jones isn't there that that line leeches i hate leeches snakes that's snakes that is that snakes (laughs) but you know i mean slimy creatures (laughs) man there's a movie with leeches that like i i I would not i can loosely remember Um, like a 90s, 80s, a movie that I watched in the early 90s when I was a kid, I should say. So it could be any movie anytime before the 90s, but I, I remember leeches. I hate leeches. Like, yeah. almost like a like a Sean Connery delivery um, that I, I think was directly influenced from this. Or I don't remember watching this as a child, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I, I couldn't help but try and think to myself, like, why do I respond to something like Indiana Jones so much more than this when at the same time, when I see this as very well crafted, very capably crafted. And I, I think it's partly about how it manages um, what, what it's asking us to believe, for one. Um, there is suspension of disbelief in Indiana Jones, but there isn't this this romance that feels right in front of our face, but underdeveloped. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah it is adult. something. It is it is a little bit about the corniness of it. Yeah, Indiana Jones, I would say, has more adult um, relationships, interpersonal and, and, and sexually. Um, for Indy, whereas this is very much, you know, the I don't necessarily believe these people have these jobs, nor do I believe that they could be in this type of love. Um, but I, I guess that brings me to Bogey, who does earn an Oscar for this performance. To me, I, I brought this up earlier. This is him doing his homage to Buster Keaton. He's he's smacking a boat around. He's um he's welding. It's sinking on him. He's holding um at the end the sign that says the African Queen in, in this comedic style. I, this really reminds me of multiple of those Buster Keaton shorts that we watched um, for the class that we took. Does that hold true for you at all, or, or does it feel influenced by you or from that? Yeah, to some extent. Yeah, I, I totally see the connection. Um, I think I, I wish this had more of the wit that I think I feel in Keaton's gags and jokes. Um, you know, I don't know. There's There's just something about... Uh, the the lack of complexity to these gags, I guess, that I don't know, they'll stick with me. Yeah, they're mass appeal gags. Mm-hmm. So it's a mass appeal piece of cinema. Um, it, that's why I said tentpole, you know, this is a blockbuster attempt before blockbuster existed, essentially. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel generally positive on it. I think that Hepburn, um, although... I, I have a lot of problems maybe with the screenplay and how everything works out. I think that her just solitude and, and steadfastness and believing that she was playing this character, at least, allowed Bogey to go to a place that I'd never seen him go comedically and earn this award. I, I think that she's equally responsible for playing one half of this road trip duo. Yeah. So if you could give Bogey an award would you give it to him for this performance Uh, probably not because then i'd be incentivizing him to do something that he's not best at but i I also wouldn't take it away from him for this performance fair enough that's kind of i i I like (laughs) the idea of a comedy performance winning an oscar a lot this isn't one of my favorite comedy performances but i i do think that we need to consider that more. Don't say that too much anymore. That is for sure. Yeah. Adam Sandler. <laughs> Poor boy. So what we're saying is Adam Sandler for best actor. For yeah. That's what I would have said mystery? last year before <laughs> the, Oh yeah. Murder party. <laughs> um, I guess favorite scene. Do you have one off the top of your head? Well, I think, um, yeah, I'll go real, eclectic here and say my favorite scene is actually the gnat scene just because it blew my mind how they were doing the special effects and the commitment that each actor had to behave as if there's gnats 
then address the gnat bites that there weren't on their skin as if there were. The, the performances, the special effects, the direction, just everything came together there. And if I was a kid, I would have absolutely believed that that was like gnats and not thought a second about it. So I'll, I'll go with that. How about you? I guess I'll go with the set piece when they do pass the Nazi fort. It does feel like maybe the big set piece, even I don't know why that's going to stand out in my memory longer than the climax will, partly because of how that that does kind of work as a theme park ride kind of thrill. You know, you're moving along in your boat and you've come across, you know, the enemy. Get down. It's just kind of a charming you know in its way mm-hmm. um, and it makes perfect sense because there's a lot of german medieval castles littered all over the continent of africa everywhere <laughs> yeah it's uh it's a funny movie but i like it i like it a lot uh on to key largo key largo a lonely island off the coast of florida sultry heat-ridden cloaked in the strange menace of the sea. But stranger still is the destiny that brings these people to this remote outpost, to be held at bay with a price on their lives by a man with a price on his head. Nothing to stop me from wiping you all out. What good will that do, boss? Forget it. Her kind's a dime a dozen. I say smack her and let it go at that. Smacking her isn't enough for such an insult. He'd have to kill her. Then he'd have to kill the rest of us because we witnessed it. But to kill us all or nothing. This is a film starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. It came out in the year 1948 and was written by Richard Brooks and John Huston. What do you think about this one, Michael? I dug this movie. I'm positive on it. What about you? I am very certain that when I was watching this, as soon as he got on that boat, I was like, oh, this is Michael's favorite movie. At the end? Yep. Yep, because it follows the not to have and have not. What's the other one where where Boki gets hmm. on a boat? Yeah, that was to have and have not. Was that? Oh yeah, I thought also that, with Bacall. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was like, oh, this is of course, of course. Great scene, great finish for sure. Uh, yeah, this is definitely my kind of thing. This is Houston in noir mode, which I actually <laughs> thought my to myself that this would also be um, up your alley, just knowing your affection for the Maltese Falcon. Yes. Um, Sounds like maybe not quite there. There's a lot of parts I really like about it, but I think that it there's certain scenes that are f- just phenomenal, but it suffered from being a little bit too smothered. All I can say is that there maybe wasn't enough square footage to get enough breadth or enough air in some of these shots because when we're in the hotel it's just such tight focus almost all the time and that leads to some just truly fantastic layering and framing where there's nine people in a scene and one person centered in the back and we see all these other people acting their hearts out along the way and i mean it's it's truly captivating cinema but if i had my pick i I'd have more square footage and, and more breadth as far as camera work because it was just a little bit too dark, a little bit too cramped um, for me to feel at ease with it. And and mm. not at ease in a positive way, but at ease like, 
ooh, they're having to work really, really hard to make this work. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think I would describe it in the same way, only say that I responded well to it. Um, I mean, I, I guess I was first and foremost just kind of surprised by, you know, how one of the noir tropes I have to think about is how, you know, how often they feature really convoluted plots and how very minimally plotted this is. Like, Edward G. Robinson's character is just a thug through and through who bullies his way into the hotel. The specifics of the deal he needs the hotel for are kind of irrelevant. Like, he's just there, and it's just about the tension between the thugs and the innocent people um, over the course of one night. Like, I don't... It's kind of... To me, it felt like a unique noir in that sense that it's just about um tension between characters um and i think that claustrophobia that you disliked is what gave it its atmosphere for me um yeah, yeah and yeah i can imagine that it, yeah if you if you dislike that sense of tightness you know caused by the storm forcing these people inside this is probably gonna yeah I, I don't have limited dislike value. the premise. I dislike the square footage. <laughs> <laughs> you just literally want that hotel to be bigger, like more rooms. <laughs> yes, that's not more rooms, just more room in the rooms. Because, I mean, there's there's scenes in the bedroom when everyone's in there where it just, it's cramped in a, in a non-useful way. Like, it doesn't look bad. It doesn't look good. It just looks fine. But it could have looked great if they had, like, three more feet to move the camera back and then maybe dolly in for that close one before you fade and and go downstairs. But there's so much room juggling um, and all those rooms are so tight that it it doesn't I I didn't even feel relieved when we went outside, you Mm. know, I I don't know. It's it's a film that I don't think benefited from the lack of square footage but there's i i do think there's a lot more to this noir than um just being straightforward there's a theme i think that that's a little bit of a post-war theme in which the native americans trust the man who runs this hotel whose son died in uh italy um in world war ii and they're about to turn themselves in and then they die because they trusted him and he was locked or um, they believe that he locked them out of safety and shelter when really someone more evil um, was actually doing it and made them think otherwise. So I, I do think there is something post-colonial interacting in, in the theme there where he's trying to reckon with um, Native Americans and what happened to them in our history 100 percent. thematically i definitely think there's plenty there i just mean it means in terms of the plot it's just about getting these people in a room for the night yeah um and in the native american case getting them in a jail for 30 days (laughs) or yeah keeping (laughs) them outside actually (laughs) yes um yeah it uh you're you already mentioned to have and have not it reminded me a lot of to have and have not because it's especially in bogey's character's arc you know it's uh him being initially and and actually not that different from the african queen even where he's reluctant initially to to get involved he just wants to kind of save his own neck and then eventually has this kind of um he takes this turn turns towards morality or Mm -hmm. doing the right thing or standing up to these tyrants um 
I don't think the the pivot is quite as convincing to me as it was in something like To Have and Have Not, where I remember so clearly that final standoff where Bogart's character in that one flips the table and says, I'm sick of this, to a couple German guys. Um, and it was just entirely compelling. Here, I'm not quite sure like when that happened. You know, he, it's a great climax. I love the scene on the boat. But I don't know that that was quite as um, uh, nuanced for me, I guess, or quite as convincing. Um, but I, I, I like the theme, I guess. Yeah, I think to have and have nots a lot more... Um... Roomier. I don't know if it's prescient. <laughs> it is roomier. It does have that going for it. It's um, it has like an intangible sense of a, a little bit more realism. I, I mm-hmm. think it's because we see the boat from another boat. I believe. I, I believe that the mm-hmm. way that it's shot, we actually see them on that boat, which is something that was very interesting in the African Queen, where we actually do see them on the boat, um, shot from another boat or shot from the the bank side of a river, um. Here, I don't think we ever see the boat shot as if it is a boat. I think we see some shots of it as a model inside of of a stage. And maybe we see shots of people that aren't um, the actual individuals on the boat. But we never see that side-by-side shot of them on a real boat. Mm -hmm. Which definitely detracts from the um, the realism that we feel um, just passively when we watch this piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how about the like the the metaphor of the storm, or even if you don't see it as a metaphor, did it add to the atmosphere to you? Was it heavy handed? I'm curious. Um, I mean, you got to think about it first as a play, and it it totally has to be there for the play to function. Uh, that's the whole point. Whether it's a, a psychological storm. Um, or it's a real storm, or it's a, a storm of reckoning, or it's a storm of the law. It, it's all those things. I think it absolutely w- works, and it's it's a very interesting piece of post-production, pre-production effort that they had to go through to get the shutters rigged to fall out and the windows to fall in, <laughs> which is kind of absurd. And then um, I, I believe that in that moment, when it bursts open, we see all this foliage with no wind at all, <laughs> no rain, just foliage. And it's just the most absurd shot. But the commitment to have the lightning crack um, affect the lighting inside and then screw up um, our our villain's hair for the remainder of, of the time, it, it absolutely works. And those palm trees getting bent in half, like their claymation. Oh, I, w- I was seeing... Uh, Gosh, what's that? Guanji? Is that Guanji in the Guanji? Valley of the Limit that? of the Monsters? I don't think I know that. Oh, it's a Ray Bar- Bradbury. Uh, or not Ray yeah. Bradbury, sorry. Um, who's the specialist for Sinbad and all those other claymation and slow motion pieces? Oh, I don't think I know. Oh, boy. Ray Harryhausen. There we go. I don't know that name. Oh, he he influenced um Harry. Housen or Harry Harry Housen in Monsters Inc. He's mm. he's one of the famous mm. uh, claymation makers that did like um, King Kong and, and stuff. Got it. Got Sinbad. It. All the saw that in the trees here. All the 1950s stuff. Yeah. 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 I did wonder if the kind of relentlessness of the storm would be oppressive or, or heavy handed for 
folks, but I thought I mean, it, it added a great deal it of is, atmosphere. But it's, and, it has to be there. Without yeah, it, mean, it doesn't work. It's mar- like by and large just a, like a feat in sustained tension to me. It's just about when and if you know these the tension between these people will come to blows and you know that a storm might hit like it's just a, a, a decent little metaphor I, I can't help but kind of go for it um and edward gia robinson i loved him were you a fan yes yes i was he he has some passive like facial tics that are just like that stage actor thing you know like john c riley i see a little bit of john c riley in him i guess um where it's just that guy can convince me that he is who he is because he believes that he is who he is which which Mm -hmm. goes a long way in performance yeah um i think i read that he was kind of modeled the character was kind of modeled after al capone Mm -hmm. um and we not only just did first impressions on the upcoming al capone but i thought a lot about um Robert De Niro's performance in De Palma's The Untouchables. Um, okay. And, and how he seems to be channeling that performance. It's partly just about like that kind of downward curl of Robinson's lips, especially in those close-ups. It just feels kind of De Niro-esque to me, especially in just kind of the hamminess of their performance. Um, I, I think it's pretty fun. I think it might be too scenery-chewing for some folks. I, I could understand that response, but for me... I think it's great. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know a little bit about the history there as far as um, Cubans running the numbers game in Miami, especially and in, in all up uh, the East Coast. And to me, that that's what made it believable was this guy who actually was playing this character that is historically accurate, at least up through the 90s. Um, anybody that knows who Joey Diaz is, uh, I'm sure knows all the stories that I personally know courtesy of joey diaz um but it it's an absolute fulcrum believing that this guy is a top tier gangster who fell from grace and is now being um put on the lamb with the money that he was able to pull from from the numbers game and whatever other rackets he was running um to cuba i it, it just feels real. I, I think this was, what, 1948? So, um, you know, the FBI is trying to close down on all the gangster. It just, it feels um, a level of sincere. Yeah, for sure. It's Yeah, it, it works. It's believable. Yeah. Uh, I love some of the side characters. There's the one kind of... Uh, crony who's been like super stylishly dressed with like his suspenders versus the other guys who are who are a little more frumpy i think it's just kind of like a nice crew. oh you're talking about the guy with the gcb suspenders or whatever i can't remember what the emblem was i but... could be totally wrong i think his name was boots is that right i don't know why i have that name in my head i could be wrong but he it was, was it was some favorite. sort of a non-endearing single word like monosyllable I don't remember what it was, though. Yeah, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but the running joke about Prohibition as well, which I thought yes. was hilarious. Especially the very first time where Robinson's yelling at the crony to just say something because he's scared and he wants a distraction. He's like, I'm trying to think of something to say. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. We're all going to work together after Prohibition comes back. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I don't know. How do you feel about Bacall? I think Bacall is kind of underused here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Robinson, I don't get the sense he really wants to share the stage with anybody here. Maybe rightfully so. And I think Bacall definitely gets sidelined. Um, I think Houston definitely knows how to capture those close-ups that are fantastic. But the the role feels pretty minor here. What about you? Yeah, I mean... I'd, I guess I'd liken it to Marilyn Monroe in the Asphalt Jungle. Like, it just feels way too small for the quality of performer you have. Um, and Lionel Barrymore's James Temple, I mean, he has just as much screen time as Lauren, essentially, and completely defines the film mm-hmm. by standing up out of his um, his wheelchair and trying to take a swing and being responsible for you know, the, the deaths essentially of the two native American boys, um, who tried to turn themselves in. Like he just gets to be a full bodied character really smoothly because of the screenplay. And there's just nothing for Lauren. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, the temple character is like the moral counterpoint to Robinson's tyrant. Right. Mm -hmm. And then bogeys, just kind of at first in between he is kind of in this gray area where he's just trying to uninvolve just trying to not involve himself and then he, we see him move from one side of, from the middle of the spectrum to temple's philosophy i guess but yeah bacall it's funny we watched the trailer well, just when, before. when does that happen well that I happens think after they shoot the innocents uh yeah yeah i think you're right yeah 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 um yeah, I kind of forgot about when that might have, yeah, that would have been kind of the catalyst, which, yeah, that actually only makes me like it more. It's a fair point. Um, we watched the trailer to refresh our memory before talking mm-hmm. about it. It kind of, you know, sold Bacall as like a romantic point of interest here. It's not really what the film does. It's there, but... Um, it's passively there. It's never overtly um, discussed. It, even though it's very much like, why would he come call them family if he's not going to marry Lauren Bacall? He already married her in real life. Why not here? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. A lot of, uh, yeah, just tapping into audience expectations here, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the set pieces outside, I think, are what make the storm work. We discussed the palm trees that are expert. But when the cop shows up looking for Sawyer, yeah, yeah, that sounds whoever right. the, the other, other cop, cop is, yeah, yeah. Um, and we see him find the dead body after turning on his headlights, and he goes and interacts with that outside mud, and um, we see him turn on the flashlight and trapes into it to look for the Native Americans. I that's what sold the piece is actually taking place somewhere for me. I didn't feel like I was really any place when I just saw the shots of the dock, the shots of the boat and bogey, like walking into the hotel. We're in Key Largo because we told you we're in Key Largo. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, anything else you want to do favorite scenes? Anything with Edward G. Robinson in close up. Pretty entertaining. (laughs) What about you? Mm -hmm. Um, I really love when we're introduced to him and he's just hanging out 
in the bathtub smoking a cigar. That is just such a baller move and a baller shot. He gets up. He, uh, I think he throws a robe around himself. And then he takes a, a hand towel and he folds it and throws it sideways. And then brings the robe all the way up and ties it. And it, he, he just exudes cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Swap. And then he gets his shave from one of his cronies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's how, if I'm remembering correctly, De Niro is introduced in The Untouchables is during a shave. Um, yeah. And even though he's the one being shaved, somehow just the presence of that knife, somehow just that act has this kind of danger in it. You know, just mm-hmm. the sharpness of a knife in a close-up like that just has an effect. It's good stuff. How about you? You picked a pretty good one, which is his entrance. Um, but I don't know. I'll go with the the climax. Um, uh, I, I think I had read that when this initially came out, you know, there were reports of people you know, shouting more, more when Bogey was, you know, shooting him on the deck of the ship. Um, it's satisfying. It is. That is a satisfying mm. shot. Yeah. Especially how the, the snub nose pistol is just like, you could you can mm. see that he can see it the way that the camera is showing us. And, and see, that's what that extra room does. It lets you get those shots that like affect the viewer. And it's not, it's not super tied up. So you can kind of affect point of view i think um in just seeing that snub nose creep out before he creeps out and then watching him pop him that was that was a pretty good shot good stuff on to the asphalt jungle only once in a decade does the screen come up with such absorbing characters sterling hayden as dix handley a hooligan with a twisted dream gene hagen as doll the diamond dance dame who wanted to share that shabby dream let me go with you. Please, Dix, please. Are you crazy? I'm on the lamb. I'm on a bad, packing heat. If there's any trouble, what good would you be? I could drive. No, no. I'm wanted on a killing rap. You know what that means. I don't care. I just want to be with you. Louis Calhern as Emmerich, the big-time mouthpiece with crime on his mind. Oh, I suppose a fellow should stick to his own trade, but uh, I know some pretty big men around here that might not be averse to a deal like this if they're properly approached. Highly respectable men, I might add. All right, Michael. This film was released in 1950 and is about a major heist. Once again, co-written by John Huston and directed by John Huston. Where does this come in for you? In terms of your ranking, it was great. I don't know. I don't I don't feel strongly. There's a lot of stuff that I like about Key Largo, but there's just like one thing throughout the whole film that I don't like. Whereas this I I generally like everything except for a few moments of, of wasted time. So I I don't know. I don't know yet. I can tell you I love the bookends of the introduction of asphalt. Just a, mm-hmm. a, a asphalt hill that feels like a mountain and a car pulls up, right? Mm-hmm. And the film ends in a pasture. A green pasture with him dead being licked, essentially, by horses. Um, and the woman that he came with running for a house in the, in the background. It's um, mm-hmm. 
I think that those bookends of the film are are really speak to the entire piece of the film inside of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's an ensemble movie, but that we start and end with one character, Sterling Hayden's character, I think is effective in sort of personalizing it somehow, sort of sharpening the focus. Um, I loved it. To me, this is like quintessential American film noir. I might go so far as to call it a masterpiece in my book. I love this oh kind boy. of thing. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, masterpiece. I, 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 it I, is I, I, not I Rafifi, this. my friend. It is not yeah. Rafifi. Five years before Rafifi, I think. Yeah, um, it's still not good enough. There, I would say the high sequence is not as thrilling as Rafifi's, which is, I think, longer and completely silent. And just the slickness of that, I think, is superior. I found it a lot more thrilling. Yeah. Um,. I also thought of Kubrick's The Killing, which I think was 1956, which also had Sterling Hayden. To me, there are shots in The Killing that I have not seen that. It looks like there are scenes in that movie that are just plucked right out of this one, but there, Hayden is the one who's masterminding the the heist. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, this is just what I want when I, I think of noir in terms of its representation of the city is just a bleak kind of urban wasteland with the wet streets and fog, thick ass fog. Like the fog mm-hmm. guy was ha- on his game. Um, there's a line Hayden's character has about when he gets to his farm, you know, he's going to, the first thing he'll do is take a bath in the Creek and wash the dirt of the city off of him. That's just great hard boiled dialogue. And you just believe that when you go inside, in this city, you're going to have to like wipe some grime off you or something like that. I, I just think it's compelling place setting for me. Yeah. The, the cafe felt that same level of grime. Do you think they had the same fog guy at the end of Key Largo? Oh, probably. Maybe Houston <laughs> had like a go-to fog operator yeah, uh-huh. and he's like, when in doubt, more fog. <laughs> I go, I go to Warner brothers. I say, give me foghorn Lagorn. <laughs> He loves him some good fog. Um, the I, what I really liked is the recurring set piece of the the cafe in which Dick stashes the gun first, goes back to get funds. He goes back, I think, two more times on his way out, um, and and then the final cafe before Doc gets captured. I I really think that the this film works because it goes back to that ground level of these are people that walk into diners. These are what the diners looked like at the time. This is how they plan to pull their jobs and where they pulled their jobs. And there's, there's just something believable about that. It's almost, um, it honestly reminded me of the deuce. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. We can see that in, in its grittiness. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they announced that, um, or I think one of the guys in the cafe says that he heard that the, uh, whatever the term is for the, the police trucks that just put people in them are, are out on, in the city right now and you have to stay in or else they're going to put you in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, caravan maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, in contrast to something like Key Largo, as much as I like Edward G. Robinson's character, you know, to me, that's an example of a, crime kingpin that is you know mm-hmm. a, a display of organized crime and these guys are the more everyday kind of criminals like obviously the the german kind of mastermind is the 
intelligent That's Doc mastermind. to you. That is Doc. I was about to try and remember his German name. I won't dare do that. Erwin Reidenschneider. Nailed it. But other characters, like one of the guys, we see him, you know, at home with his wife and his kid, and Hayden just wants to try and get back to the farm his family lost. I'm not saying that I'm, like, apologizing for any of these people, because they're terrible people, I think, to some extent. And, and especially when you get into, like, the sexual component of the movie, which I think is which is pretty queasy. Um, but to me, those are, like, the noir archetypes that I'm always drawn to, or the ones that feel a little more every day, you know, mm-hmm. um, that are, are just kind of um, desperate to escape from whatever it is they feel trapped by. And here, like it's kind of ironic to me that the the cops are the ones who see this city as a kind of jungle but to the crux it seems more like a cage from that they're mm-hmm. that they're trying to escape from um and you know the inevitability of them not being able to do so is always quite in the air that is great yeah that, that's an interesting point that reminds me of um the Sam Fuller film the Naked Kiss, in which um, one of the cities is essentially a cage for her, and the other one is the is freedom, and we actually get to go there, and it's not freedom, and he's a pedophile, and that's a separate thing. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Very, yeah. fair point. <laughs> um, the that that cage motif, I I think, is something that is maybe a bit more broad um, in that point in time where they were returning from experiencing the world as far as soldiers go. Men were soldiers. They had a license to kill. They had a license to be everywhere, do everything, save the world, save the planet, do the most good they could ever do in their life. And then they came back and they're essentially experiencing a cage in which there's no economic mobility for them. They're the only way to, to get ahead. It seems for some of these guys is to pull a job switch cities and and try to turn that cage into one that's at least a little bit more gilded yeah 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 and we were talking about rafifi i remember watching that heist sequence in rafifi and thinking like i think they're gonna pull this off because like they got this figured out like they are smooth they are so smooth and up to a point this heist goes well until it does everything goes wrong yeah what I love is that shot as they're walking away from the vault that they've just robbed, and there's that, like, gridiron sliding door that closes, which both, like, ties a bow on the heist sequence, but also is just this perfect visual metaphor for their fates being sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, this visual foreshadowing for where they're all g- gonna end up. Um, that was just perfect visual storytelling. Yeah, the, um, the... I know it's not presented as narration, but I do think that Houston does something really smart that I would attribute just off the cuff with no evidence to his um, sensibilities for directing in which instead of having a narrator, he has the police commissioner in which he just cuts back to him and uses him for a narrator of the orchestration of the entire law enforcement of the city. And I believe that we get Shortly after that, to that scene in which he flips on each intercom for cops being called to the Mm. scene of a crime. And it's just so powerful visually and audibly to the audience to cue us into 
the oppressiveness of this cage, even though I'm personally on the side of law enforcement in this situation, <laughs> it, it does feel like they're a smothering force that's just going to get you mm-hmm. no matter what. Um, and I, I think that using a side character as a narrator that creates that oppression instead of a narrator is a really smooth choice in the screenplay. Yeah, I love that. Uh, narration's so common in noir, and you can so easily imagine Sterling Hayden even, like, narrating this from beyond the grave mm-hmm. and saying, you know, that this city was always full of the crooks and the rapists or whatever, but we'd see that cop flipping the switches. Yeah, it's a, a great change from uh, the narration I think we would otherwise get um, in a lot of noirs. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, you know, hindsight's 50, 50, 20, 20, perfect, whatever you want to call it. I love the Naked City so much because it's real. And just how often this didn't feel real, even though we're out in these wide spaces, was a big problem for me, I, I think, in how mm. I appreciated the film. Um and there's, I mean, I can't blame that on anybody or anything that's industry standard at the time, but it really did undercut the idea of this sprawling and limited asphalt jungle because there was never a sense of it actually being a real city. It just felt like a facade. That's interesting. I was trying to remember. I don't think it's even a named city it's not um he does say that he's going to go to cincinnati at the end they say where they're going but not where they are correct um that i can recall maybe i'm wrong yeah um yeah so it's it's uh is it specificity in in place that i was hearing there that you you felt was kind of lacking no 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 just um just the idea that it's a real city I, I don't need to know where I am. I think it's better if you don't know where you are. Kind of mm-hmm. Gotham is every city mm-hmm. um, theory where it's just there weren't real people. There was nothing real empty, yeah. happening yeah. in the cafe. There was no one else, mm. you know, and I mean, that's that's one of those differences in a film that's very, very similar called Sullivan's Travels from Preston Sturgis <laughs> in which they're in a cafe and there's other characters there. There's other mm. things happening and you feel like you're meeting someone distinct that represents the city. Um, that never really happened here. It just felt like everything was part of the same thing. There was no realness and there was nothing played up to give distinctiveness either. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I when you look at the street scenes and how there's just nobody around, I yeah, I could easily see two different kind of takes one is that it's yeah it just doesn't feel like a city because it's like where is everybody um i think i tend to skew towards the like expressionistic feel of it which is just that it feeds into kind of that sense of like urban alienation and loneliness you know if like if you kind of see noir as hard-boiled fiction meets german expressionism i'm always skewing towards the latter like i Mm. want the visual metaphor but you're right this one does maybe challenge the realism a little bit because you're like there's no one here (laughs) yeah and it's it's very much hard-boiled to me in its fiction um Mm. as far as the narrative goes to where it just if we could have met a character that had nothing to do with the film Mm -hmm. itself that was just like eclectic and and represented something (laughs) of 
a, a singular fingerprint to it. Um, like a like if we could have a moment like we did with with a gangster that has nothing to do with this job. But everybody's tied to everybody. Everybody knows everything. And there's a total of 20 people that are paper cutouts that run the city. And these two characters, the police commissioner and the guy who's broke, know all of them and have already spoken to all of them on the phone in the scenes we didn't see in the film. Like, it's just, it's weird. Yeah, it, it kind of runs a, against, like, some of my normal sensibility where I want in-between moments that help to fill out the world. Like, even a final scene where the doc is watching this girl day into the jukebox Mm -hmm. you get the sense that this character is there for the purpose of the plot for the sake of him getting caught right it's just another instance of chance not really a sense of this being the world where people are just in it and he happens to stumble upon him it feels like they were put there yeah um which i just go for a noir it's weird but i completely understand the complaint (laughs) i so I also go for it in almost every noir and in a lot of scenes in this noir. But if the sidewalks just had real people, like two, <laughs> anyone, <laughs> like a boy walking his dog and like a, a girl riding a tricycle, like mm-hmm. just anything to be real. But it it lacked that, and that is my uh, my major complaint as I kick the table. That is totally fair. Um, performances that I particularly liked were uh, Gene Hagens, who who played Sterling Hayden's girlfriend, mm-hmm. the alcoholic, another alcoholic, uh, uh, laid off dancer, right? Yeah, because where she danced or the right? the club. No, it was a club. Mm-hmm. The club was closed. For I forget what the theme was. They were closing businesses that were doing some sort of a thing and loading all the dancers in as they would close each club. I forget exactly what that line of dialogue was, though. Yeah. Um, one of the like primary sentiments I got of, from this movie was just desperation. These people mm-hmm. are just desperate to get out of this town, but I think I maybe got that most from her and just like that jittery, high-strung uh, acting that just seems like she was kind of on the verge of, of breaking down and she kind of does break down at one point i thought she was pretty good um so that's anyway. interesting i want to interject there you're talking about desperation um to get out of town i also think i was picking up on a theme of maybe desperation for the american dream that at some level it this is where it began to die pretty clearly i think for a lot of americans it, it's pretty much in our generation unanimously like LOL. <laughs> American dream. Yeah, we wish that we could have a deposit to pay that mortgage. Um, whereas at this point in time, it was still something that was being reckoned with and and lessened because all the property had essentially already been given away by the federal government, which it kind of created that idea of um, prosperity, essentially, by being an American. You get given land. You can turn land into a living and a family and stuff. So I, I think that it's kind of this post-war reckoning as well as the American dream dying in in a really interesting point in time, which is the, the early 50s before Detroit had fallen when we still had industry and factories. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
for me, if I saw it as the American dream dying or just the like unattainability of it, um, like I think when I think of fifties, I think about um, Americans like mm-hmm. fleeing to the suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some people maybe maybe did, and they they kind of thought that was what the dream was, and then there are plenty of movies that show the suburbs themselves, like the Naked Kiss, to be just as troubled and perverse as the city can be. Um, yeah, I don't, I almost, I don't know what, what, what sentiment I see here in terms of what Americans would have felt was holding them back from being able to do that, that might have, that this might have tapped into. Yeah. Um, that's just my lack of history there. Well, may, it it might not be overt either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that John Houston specifically is, is keyed into a lot of this post-war emotion, I, yeah. I guess, is the only way that I could put it. And Anything else? Uh, I gotta do favorite scene, right? Favorite scene. Gotta go with just the dance scene with Doc. It's totally fabricated, but so is America, and that somehow rings true. Um, and then the, the line after that, when he's being handcuffed and he asks how long they were there for, and mm. just to know that that last dance was the thing, or that last song was the thing that, you know, ended his life essentially, because we assume he's going back to prison for the rest of his life at this point. Um, it just goes a long way in, in theme transition and just speaking to me as an audience member, I guess. Mm, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go really specific because it's just a part of the heist, which is when Hayden is Sterling Hayden's character is sort of playing like the is sort of like standing guard he's looking out the window um I don't know why I just love that shot of him looking out the window because there's a different kind of blind I always think of Venetian blinds when I think of noir you know the vertical lines but they're a little softer I just have that shot like stuck in my head now cemented it's that's good and I briefly another great shot during the heist is when he's actually physically chiseling and hammering out the brick in the mortar, that that's fantastic. I, I love stuff. that little bit of realism. Goes a long way for me. Word. That's John Houston. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.